Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. Today we are joined by AAO President-Elect and Chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at Dell Medical School, Dr. Jane Edmond. You don't want to miss Dr. Edmond sharing her inspiring medical story, her leadership experiences, passion projects both in and outside of ophthalmology. We're so happy to have Dr. Edmond here today. Dr. Jane Edmond is Professor of Ophthalmology and Neurology and Director of the Mitchell and Shannon Wong Eye Institute and Founding Chair in the Department of Ophthalmology at Dell Medical School in Austin, Texas. She specializes in pediatric and adult strabismus, as well as pediatric neuroophthalmology. Dr. Edmond is president-elect of the American Academy of Ophthalmology and past president of APOS. She's joining us today as a visiting professor at Mayo Clinic. Welcome, Dr. Edmond. Thank you, Andrea, Dr. Tooley. I <laughs> am so proud and happy to be here and very, very honored and privileged. Well, it's fantastic that you're here and we're taking full advantage of you being a visiting professor here at Mayo and making you join us on the podcast. Happy to be here. We're so sad that my co-host Eric is missing this. His son is getting married, so he has a great excuse. Minor excuse, but we'll have to give him a pass here. So Yes, and you two are strabismus buddies, Yes, so you know him well. Yes, exactly. So we're sending you our love, Eric, and we miss you. <laughs> well, I have so many things that I want to talk to you about. I want to talk about your leadership journey, your education journey. I mean, you're in a super niche pediatric neuro-ophthalmology specialty, but you got there in a, in a really fantastic way that I want to talk about. You've founded a department of ophthalmology and a residency, which a handful, if not less, people have ever done, which is incredible. You're president-elect of AAO. You are just an outstanding person inside and out. So there's a lot of things that I want to kind of dive into today. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for being here. One thing I want to start, I think a lot of people know you and know who you are, and they know that you've trained in pediatric ophthalmology and neuro-ophthalmology, but it just blew me away to hear your training story. I think it's mm. fantastic and very inspiring. So can you just share with the listeners your quick, brief ophthalmology journey? Happy to do that. 1986 is when I started my residency at Baylor College of Medicine finished in 1989, did a fellowship in pediatric ophthalmology at the University of Iowa, came back to Baylor for about seven years, and then moved to Philadelphia, where I worked at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for another seven years, and I had a part-time position at Will's Eye Hospital on Friday, staffing a resident clinic, came back to Houston, and I had been so inspired by the multidisciplinary care that I was able to participate in at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, specifically the craniofacial clinic. And I learned so much from the, listening to the plastic surgeons, the neurosurgeons, the geneticists. It was very enriching for me and very professionally satisfying. And it became sort of a niche area of interest where I published some and lectured quite a bit in that space. So we moved back to Houston and there were good reasons for that. I went back to Texas Children's and Baylor. My husband was offered the chair of head and neck surgery at MD Anderson. So he wanted to go back to Houston. My stepfather had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and my mom was going to be alone and lived in Texas. So, you know, it was like the forces of nature telling me to go back home. So I uh, got back to Houston and got my old job back, but I got pretty depressed that I was doing more bread and butter 
pediatric ophthalmology, although it was a very tertiary children's hospital. It had not grown to the size it is today, and I wasn't so involved in craniofacial care or multidisciplinary care, and I really had sort of burned out of just general pediatric ophthalmology and needed to pivot. I think I had to totally bottom out before I made the decision to pursue a different career path. And so I met with Danny Jones, my chair, and I had some ideas in mind. One was to do all the care at our county hospital and pediatric and adult ophthalmology, all the VA care, just do indigent care because I have a big passion for caring for the safety net population. But the other idea, which I had, was I had a very big interest in neuro-ophthalmology. And I was also inspired to do neuro-ophthalmology because we didn't know what we were doing in this growing children's hospital. I had a patient go blind from a pseudotumor cerebri that was related to her being on immunosuppressives. She had orthotropic heart transplant. And I watched her go blind. And that is due to my inexperience in neuro-ophthalmology. My training in pediatric ophthalmology was so focused on strabismus and in pediatric cataracts and ptosis and nasolacral duct obstruction. We sort of ignored the optic nerve. And so the Children's Hospital is growing in its neuroscience division. And due to my needing a factory reset, neuro-ophthalmology fellowship seemed to be the something that would save me. And it really did save me. It was uh, a renaissance, really. And it began a career in this very niche field. I was able to provide much better care to our patients with brain tumors and neurologic conditions at the Children's Hospital, which was very gratifying to me, working a multidisciplinary team with uh, the neuro-oncologist, brain tumor specialist. But it took like a burnout to be able to pivot. It was one of the best years. I loved being a fellow. (laughs) That just blows my mind. And there's so many facets of that that I want to delve into. We talk a lot about burnout, career satisfaction, and nobody ever talks about going back to training 15 years into your career. You know, you weren't just a couple years out and said, oh, you know, I I don't like my choice. I'm going to do a different fellowship. You were 14, 15 years out. So mid-career. Correct. How do you convince someone... To, was it hard to, to let them be your, you be their fellow? Or, uh, I mean, I guess not because you're outstanding, but well, it just, it seems like that would be weird. So it was very interesting in that the neuro-ophthalmologist, I wasn't leaving town. My kids are like in middle school and right. going into high school. So I, there is no way I'm going to go away to do a neuro-ophthalmology fellowship. I spoke to Rod Ferusen, who was a neuro-ophthalmologist at, at Baylor, I'd known Rod for many years because he was my resident at Wills. Oh, wow. In the Friday clinic that I staffed for those six plus years when mm-hmm. I was at Wills. So he did his neuroophthalmology. He was a resident at Wills and neuroophthalmology at Wills. And he got a job at Baylor. And then several years later, I came back to Baylor to be a pediatric ophthalmologist. And I spoke to him. And at the time, there was no match for neuroophthalmology. So, mm-hmm. yes, you can be my fellow. That sounds great because. On the first day of my fellowship, he said, you know, the best thing about you is that in 12 months, I'm never going to see anyone less than 18 mm. <laughs> because he was right. taking care of kids and adult neuro-ophthalmologists oh, wow. are not 
terribly comfortable right. with a wiggly right. four-year-old with ADD so and this optic. This was great pen. for him. This was great for him, and I would manage. I would do you know, ampl- I'd figure out. I'd refract, do amblyopia treatment if mm-hmm. needed of his patients, and then they'd transfer to me at the end of the year, which is what happened. Oh, that's so perfect. You had to take a big pay cut, I'm sure. Yes. To go from faculty to fellow. <laughs> uh, but I did negotiate with uh, the Children's Hospital like a PGY 50 salary. <laughs> but it wasn't the current salary. But, you know, at that point, money didn't matter. Right. I think it's so outstanding. You never hear a story like this. But the way you describe it as a renaissance and as a treatment for burnout, a factory reset, like, this is all so incredible. And I don't know if anybody would consider you know, maybe I should go back to training and learn, but what an incredible gift to give yourself. Ophthalmologists, I think, are naturally intellectually curious mm-hmm. and uh, lifelong learners anyway. Mm-hmm. And I negotiated, I wouldn't perform ROP exams or do any diode lasers, which was like manna from heaven for mm-hmm. me. I didn't take call at the Children's Hospital, but I did sign a contract that I would come back for three years and be a pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist. Wow. Of course, I'm going to do that. My kids are like in middle school and high school. Yeah, it was good. I think this just really goes to show that if something's not working in your life, you can create the life that you want. You can dream it and write it and make it. You know, this was not a path that was already set forth. You designed it and you wrote what you wanted and made it. Yeah, but it did take a burnout to get there. So hopefully... This has taught me and maybe can teach others that you don't have to reach the sort of the depths of despair before you figure out how to dig out. You can do that prior to the nadir. Yeah, but it's a great perspective that you have having known. I'm sure you have such a deep understanding of career satisfaction and what that means and what it means to be part of a healthcare system in lots of different ways. And I'm sure you apply that. I'm going to kind of transition to talking about now your role Mm. as chair of the department, but building a department from the ground up. What is that like? (laughs) How do you even start? When I hear you talk about what you've done, how you've created a department, you've hired faculty, you've designed and built your department just like you designed and built your dream job and your fellowship experience you designed and built a residency program in my head I always have the thought how do you learn how to do that what books do you read who teaches you that how do you learn these things you just learn on the job I have to know because I always think I could never do that I I don't have the the business acumen or I'd, I'd have to read every business book, health CEO book, healthcare, business, MBA book, you know, I'd need an MBA to do that or whatever. So tell me everything. Well, so I felt the same. So when I was looking at the position, I investigated the job because I was asked by someone on the search committee via a friend of mine in Houston. The search committee was not entirely satisfied with the group of applicants to the positions. The this, position meaning they, Dell Medical School, wanted someone to come and build the ophthalmology department. Correct. Okay. Uh, and the applicants to this inaugural chair position, someone on the person on the search committee, mm-hmm. actually the the head of the search committee, the lead on the search committee, indicated to a friend of mine at a retina meeting that the search committee was not entirely satisfied with those who had applied, mm. and they got to talking, and my friend said, "Have." 
you, it sounds like you want somebody like Jane Edmond. And this, the person on the search committee will tell me a little bit about her. And then I get a call about a day later. Do you know about this job, this new, this inaugural chair position of the Department of Ophthalmology? And yes, I had known about it, but I knew of other chairs applying for the job. I'd never been a chair or a vice chair or a program director. And I'd had a lot of leadership positions in professional organizations, but never something that I thought was the absolute requirement mm-hmm. on, on you know a, the springboard into a chair job so i didn't apply because i didn't think i would be considered but dell medical school was looking for somebody different and not your traditional archetypal chair person i think they were looking for somebody more democratic and less autocratic somebody who had coming into the position without experience so that they could innovate how can we make it better not somebody that came with ingrained this is how it's done this is how i did it but somebody who's never done it who free thinks how could it be better how would i how i have witnessed it but not something that was ingrained in this is how i do it or how we've done it Mm -hmm. so i applied for the position and I got the job, but I think not having had the experience was actually beneficial. I asked friends, you know, can I do this? Just like you, I don't have an MBA, and what books do I read? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't know, never done any of these things. I know how to be a pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist, but that's going to be like 30% of my job contracted to Ascension. What about the other 75%? I was told by David Park, the last time somebody has done this, in the history of academic ophthalmology was maybe 40 years ago, trying to do both things at once. So I talked to colleagues, and many of them have been on the board, Russ Van Gelder, Tim Stout, Steve Christensen, other chairs. Oh, and I'd be like, I can't balance my checkbook. What do you think about me overseeing finances? Oh, just hire somebody, great. Uh, Your department administrator, hire an accountant or somebody who's been there. You've got this. You have the personality. People respect you. You have integrity. You have a democratic style, which is not the autocratic style that we were kind of raised in, or Mm -hmm. many of us were. Mm -hmm. So common in medicine. So very common in medicine. That is not the way leadership trends are going these days. Mm -hmm. You already naturally do that. You empower your all the fellows and residents you've trained and supportive of your reports, uh, staff and and trainees, you can do this. Okay. It took that encouragement for me to actually apply. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I understood the mission of Delmed and vision that the inaugural Dean Clay Johnston set forth, being an inclusive health ecosystem, including our robust community partners in physicians, for me, ophthalmologists, into our department, into caring for a community of of the broad spectrum of the community, safety net population, fee-for-service, that really appealed to me. It's really wonderful what you're doing. I hate this question when anybody asks me, but I'm going to ask you anyways because I'm so curious. Have there been elements of the job that have been surprising to you or things that you didn't expect that were more challenging than you thought or you just didn't even come to your radar that like oh this is going to be the bulk of the work it didn't even occur to me what are the things you don't think about well it was drinking from the fire hose Mm -hmm. only that 30 percent of the time did i know what i was doing that was when i was in clinic or the or but the rest of the time how do i 
hire, how do I post a job position? Will you go through this process? And then that changes in six months. Mm -hmm. So there were, you know, it was a lot of drinking from a fire hose, terra incognita, but looking at all of those challenges, what one of the easiest things was actually recruiting like-minded faculty. That was probably the most enjoyable because I'm a people person, but finding people who had my same vision that were here to train amazing residents, create leaders, create socially conscious residents, provide incredible care, evidence-based care to a broad population of people, have a mind for safety net population. That actually was the easiest. Once I finally get the job positions posted, what was surprisingly difficult is the bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. UT Austin is the school. We're a college within UT Austin. You know, I graduated from there. I don't totally bleed orange yet, but pretty <laughs> close. Uh, established in 1888, and I swear to God, some of the policies have been the same since 1888. <laughs> Working with vendors is very difficult. You can't sue the state of Texas, or they won't be something called indemnification. So we've had difficulty, like establishing an optical shop has been impossible with an outside mm. contract because of these ancient bureaucratic barriers. UT Austin doesn't entirely understand having a medical school. So collaborating and integrating, especially when scientific endeavors has been slower than mm -hmm. I thought it would be. But that's definitely improving over time. So those were some of the more surprising barriers. Yeah, things you don't even think about. Yeah, and HR rules your life. Finance rules your life. Yeah. Like, you know, even though we have a very magnanimous gift that established the department accessing that money. It's all about the money. <laughs> yeah, it always is. It always <laughs> is. Well, as if you don't have enough on your plate, you're building this department, building a residency program, and then the American Academy of Ophthalmology nominates you to be president. <laughs> what is that like? I think that a lot of people don't know how the hierarchy of academy works, you know, the difference between the CEO or the president or what the role of the president is. Like, talk to me about your role as president-elect. What do you get to do? What does that mean? What's your platform as president? Like, give us the whole academy spiel. As president-elect, so uh, the terms begin in January. So I'm five months in, mm -hmm. so I don't entirely know the whole reporting structure with the president and uh, CEO, who's amazing, Stephen McLeod. I can see from Dan Bryceland's what he is doing in his role as president, and that's directing focus toward certain topics and certain issues with obviously with obtaining advice from Stephen. Mm -hmm. So both Stephen and Dan, for the first time, there have been these supranational meetings like the Asia Pacific. Both of them attended, and there was so much excitement from the attendees about the academy representation and the academy people who were there. It led them to consider how can we bring more academy wealth to these international members? How can we deepen our engagement with our international members? So that was led by Dan and mm -hmm. Stephen, uh, but with Dan's, that was his sort of passion project, I think. Yeah. Since terms turn over in January, I would like personally my passion projects, and we'll see how they play out at the academy level, is a topic that I session I sponsored at the Mid-Year Forum, and that was 
riffing off of the health disparity papers that came from Paul Lee's task force uh, that had a bunch of sub-task forces to examine health inequity, health disparities in the ophthalmic space. And I've always been very passionate about indigent care, and part of the reason I took the job in Austin is when I was interviewing the sole ophthalmologist that cared for the hospital district insured patients lost the hospital FACO equipment, was thrown out, I think, and he had nowhere to operate these patients. There was a waiting list of 300 patients with Mm. visually significant cataracts. I'm like, that cannot happen in Austin. Mm -hmm. I am burning to go fix that. That work, and how do we raise social consciousness and awareness amongst our members? What about providing a pathway as to how to get engaged in care of that safety net population? I mean, what are the tactics and provide sort of a blueprint or pathway? I would love to do that. I mean, it's obviously you can't support a practice on Medicaid, uh, 100% Medicaid patients, but maybe in my position at the academy, I can help work on providing avenues for our members. Another passion project is the workforce shortage and impending to be worse in pediatric ophthalmology, mm-hmm. neuro-ophthalmology, and uveitis. So that has been a topic of a great conversation at the last year's AAO retreat, which is a summer retreat, often in the president's vacations, some city or location that's uh, dear to the president. And it's a, a working retreat with lots of blue sky activity that comes out with you know, the summary of an, and a pathway of what should be done, but it's always topic driven. Behind the scenes at the academy, we have the most, not that I have a lot of experience in other academies, but certainly in uh, APOS, another professional organization, which is also terrific, but at the academy level, You can sit in a room with five staffers, Mm -hmm. academy staff, and count up their years of experience at the academy. It could be 120 years. Yes. Yes. We have the most committed, Mm -hmm. amazing staff. And the culture they have built, probably before Dunbar Hoskins Mm -hmm. and before David Park. Yeah. uh, Before Stephen McCutt. They've all been there 30, 40 years, all of them. And that just tells you how amazing this culture is. So to be part of that, it just is illustrative of Mm. this is a terrific organization that's value-based, that is accountable, is doing the right thing by our our patients, Mm -hmm. advocates for our patients and our members, that they're continuing to pivot and grow and do things right for uh, their constituents, which are, which are our patients and our members. So that's the behind the scenes look. That's what I've known all along. Oh, I love that you said that. It's true. I mean, the Academy is the real deal. And so much of it is run by the staffers, like you said, and the culture that they've built. That's that's really wonderful. Well, congratulations. Thank you. It's so exciting. And I mean, it is kind of a three-year term. You're president-elect year, you're president year, and then you're past president year. So you're just starting. It's very Correct. exciting. <laughs> yes, I agree. So another, you talk about 
passion projects and blue sky things and some of the things that are forefront in my life as a young mother, a young ophthalmologist, a working woman in medicine is balancing family life and managing that. And one of the big blue sky topics that I brought to the YO retreat, you know, not the Academy President retreat, but our our young ophthalmologist retreat was providing childcare at our meeting at our annual meeting and that's happening for the first time this year we're so excited that is all done by the academy that wasn't me that was the academy it's unbelievable but the idea came out of your yo work it was highly supported by the yo's but really across the board with the academy they've been so receptive and and they had it before they had child care years and years ago and then it just kind of went away and so they've they brought it back this year for the first time in San Francisco. So we're very excited about that. Nice. Um, yeah. Well, thanks. We're excited because I think if you want young ophthalmologists to be engaged, then you have Agreed. to support the phase of life that we're in as young ophthalmologists. In early training, we have young kids. We're focused on our family. And, and if I want to be engaged in ophthalmology, I have to bring my family. Correct. That's just how mm-hmm. it goes. So, But you are such a leader in this space. You have a two-physician household. You're both superstars you know your husband chair of head and neck at md anderson oh my gosh and then look at you well he's now phasing out as i ramp up he's uh ramping down so that actually was helpful that we're both not on working 10 12 hours a day you're Uh, kind of taking turns with your career that's correct but come now that you're on this side, your kids are, are grown, you've gone through it all. You know, you've been in the trenches with young kids. What would you say to young ophthalmology listeners? If I was listening to this, I think I want to be just like Dr. Edmund. I mean, I do. I want to be just like you. So how do you get through those times? So many people are in two physician households. How do you make it all work? If I could talk to my younger mom self, mm-hmm. uh, working full time and then with for first two children that were 19 months apart, as my husband had always had the vision to become a chair, like, I don't know, since babyhood, Mm -hmm. certainly since he was an otolaryngologist in training. His work was increasing in importance and in the hours. And after the second child, I felt if I was not home at six o'clock, I would burst, like my heart would burst. Mm -hmm. And work didn't always allow that. He was not at home because his efforts at work were increasing. So I felt that I needed to work less than full time. Mm -hmm. And so when we moved to Philadelphia, I had two days a week that I got to pick the kids up from school. And then I did this volunteer position at Will's Eye Hospital on Friday. So it wasn't a a 1.0 FTE. Not many ophthalmologists, like I didn't know a single ophthalmologist that did this. And when I uh, began in Philadelphia, I had a very short stint at a children's hospital that was not a children's hospital of Philadelphia because they had not didn't have a position in the budget. And I started this uh, children's hospital, lots of hospitals in the area. I was known as the part-time doctor, part-time physician. Oh, you're the new part-time physician. Yes. That's how I was characterized. Oh. But it was worth it because my heart didn't ache anymore, but I felt really guilty. Like my scholarship was not on that trajectory, it was flattened out. And I remember going to sleep at night thinking, you know, where's my 
I, I was getting amazing clinical experience, great surgical experience. And then I was at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which I was so happy being there, but still kept that same schedule. You know, I'm getting these great clinical and surgical experiences, but I am not going anywhere. I, my scholarship is not really where it should be mm-hmm. to become tenured, to get promoted in a timely way. Yeah. And I felt really badly about that. So I would tell my younger self, chill out. There are so many phases of life, especially, I think, for caregivers. Uh, me as a, I wanted, to, my husband could have worked less than 120%, but I had to, in my heart and soul, be with my children more. And I did that for about eight to 10 years. And uh, I would tell myself, do not wake up at 3 a.m. feeling guilty. Enjoy what you have. You, there's always time in your career that you can ramp up and it, it's not going to stop your career trajectory once you get back into it full swing. That's what I tell my ears. And delegate. <laughs> Don't go grocery shopping. Yeah. Have somebody make your food. You might have to fix it, but have somebody cook for you. Don't do any house cleaning. Don't feel compelled to take your kids every ride. Uh, Delegate that out as well so that you can spend more quality time with your kids and still participate in your career. Oh, man. I love the real advice you just gave. That was so real and necessary. And I think people sometimes kind of beat around the bush, but that was fantastic. The permission that you just gave so many of us. I'm glad to provide that permission. I've not given it to myself as readily, but Mm -hmm. I wish I had taken that advice earlier. Wow, that's absolutely outstanding. Dr. Edmund, it's been such a pleasure. It's over. It's over. (laughs) I think so. I think we'll wrap it up. I mean, I could talk to you for two more hours, but I think we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much for being here, really. It's a true honor. You're just outstanding and inspirational in so many ways. So thank you so much for taking the time. Dr. Tooley, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. And uh, thanks to our viewers and uh, have a great day. You too. Thank you. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more 